Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. We are now one and one half months into a presidential election year, election 2024. I thought this would be a good time to assess the presidential race at this point and the broader context of American politics that will shape the campaigns in the months to come. Joining me for what will be a wide-ranging conversation about these matters are my colleagues and good friends, Professors Joe Camerano and Adam Myers. Both are knowledgeable experts on American politics and articulate commentators on political issues. I look forward to an insightful and fun conversation. So, Joe and Adam, welcome to Beyond Your News Feed. Good to see you. Always a pleasure to be here, Bill. Great to be back. Thank you, Joe and Adam. Okay, so uh, as we start off this presidential election year, it looks like the 2024 election is going to be a replay of 2020, at least as regards the two presidential candidates. It looks like both Biden and Trump have essentially wrapped up their respective nominations, and they'll be facing off all things uh, uh, equal, that they'll be uh, facing off uh, come November. So I guess my question is, how did we get here? How is it that both of these guys are once again the nominees of their parties? And maybe we should start with, why don't we start with Trump? Joe, what's your answer to that? Well, I think... um when Donald Trump got elected in 2016, I made the comment that he destroyed the Democratic Party, but now it's the Republican Party's turn. And I think that's where we are right now. He's wreaking havoc on the Republican Party as an institution that existed since 1854. It's probably gone for good, and it's now a Trumpist party. And so I think the Republican Party no longer exists except in name. And so this is the party of Trump. Everyone's falling behind the line, you know, behind him. And um, you know, I expect it to unfold that way in part because Trump is so relentless, and everybody around him is so feckless that he has no contest. And it, you know, Mitt Romney is the only one who's actually said, "I'm not voting for him. I'm retiring because it's no longer the party that I." thought I was representing. And so the Repu we're seeing the destruction of the Republican Party, and whether it keeps its name or becomes Trumpism, we'll see. Yeah. After the January 6th uh, insurrection, January 2021, when Trump tried to hold on to office and there was this attack on the Capitol, there was some talk that, that Trump had finally gone too far, that even his—and some of his Republican allies immediately following those events— uh, we're suggesting that they weren't going to support Trump. Uh, but that soon reversed itself. And I'm kind of curious about why and how that happened, because there was certainly a moment there where maybe the Republicans, perhaps in the impeachment uh, trial that followed a few weeks later, where they could have repudiated Trump, uh, but they didn't. Uh, is fecklessness the complete explanation, or is there more going on there? Adam, you want to well, you know, this is pure speculation, but I, I think you're right. There was that moment uh, right after January 6th where it looked 
uh, like the Republican Party might be moving past Trump. But I just think that, uh, you know, Trump created such a vacuum in the Republican Party once you take him out of the equation that there was just no way to do that. Uh, and, you know, they Republicans needed Trump's leadership um, and sort of the rallying cry of Trumpism to sort of um, orient themselves and organize themselves uh, following 2021. And so we are where we are. I, I think that really to understand what's going on on the Republican side, it's useful to compare the current moment to what was going on eight years ago. So that I would like to go back not to 2021, but to 2016. Um, if you'll recall kind of the shape of the Republican primary race eight years ago, essentially what was going on was that Trump was winning a lot of the early primary contests, but not all of them. And not all of them overwhelmingly. You know, he seemed to have the support of about 40% of the Republican primary electorate at that point. And the other 60% indicated that he wasn't their second choice, or at least many of them did. Uh, and so I think what a lot of political scientists said at the time was that what was going on uh, was really that Trump was effectively taking over the Republican Party because of the failure of the institutional Republican Party's ability to uh, sort of coalesce behind an alternative to him, right? I mean, and, and that's what institutional parties are supposed to do. There, there was a whole theory in political science back then called the party decides theory, which argued that uh, in advance of when primaries actually occur, um, party elites and power brokers get together, they, they discuss amongst themselves who their preferred nominee is, they sort of start endorsing that candidate, sending money toward that candidate, and voters quickly get the message, message that that is the party's nominee. That's who the party wants. Uh, and I think, you know, as Trump was rising within the Republican Party in 2015, uh, the Republican establishment kind of twiddled its thumbs, didn't clear the field for somebody to be the alternative to him, and that's what kind of allowed Trump to skate by. Um, in those early months of 2016, right? The, there were so many other candidates, folks that we barely think about anymore, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, Ted Cruz. They split the vote such that Trump was able to win the primaries with the support of about 40% of Republicans. Fast forward to now, and in many cases, we're sort of in the opposite situation. Uh, what remains of the Republican establishment has successfully coalesced behind one alternative to Trump this time, that being Nikki Haley. Um, but uh, much has changed since uh, 2016, in particular, as Joe said, in the intervening eight years, Donald Trump took over the party. Now he enjoys the support of 80% of Republican voters rather than 40%. And so there's just no way to stop him. Right. And <clears throat> there was no candidate uh, among the challengers in the Republican primaries uh, this year, there were there was no candidate that gained any traction at all. Uh, Very little. Yeah. I mean, you know, little. You know, there were you know kind of spurts of support for a few of them, and uh, most recently Nikki Haley. But it's pretty clear that's not going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, would you say that part of the weakness of the party establishment back in 2016 may have been a consequence of the way we finance campa campaigns now? That you've got candidates able to raise money independently of the party uh, through uh, through PACs and through their own uh, uh, outside organizations. And so none of them could be controlled by the party leadership back then. 
I think that's probably part of it. But, you know, there's a lot of political science research that suggests that in the absence of strong formal party organizations, what we have today are kind of extended party networks that when they want to can act coherently. And I do think that in the at the very beginning of the 2016 presidential race, um, there was an effort on the part of the Republican extended party network, for lack of a better way to put it, to coalesce behind Jeb Bush. You know, again, this is ancient history. So right. we, we don't I remember. We, it's hard for us to remember. I'm glad you remember Bill, no. right? He raised a hundred million dollars. That's right. And everybody said it was it was Jeb's to lose. Right. And Trump was dismissed as a fringe crazy candidate. Exactly. Right? But Bush ended up being such a feckless candidate. Um, Trump quickly rose in the polls after he announced. And and that was really the moment, I, I would argue, for the Republican establishment at the time to kind of figure out what to do next. But they didn't. They, they just couldn't figure out a way to respond to him. And eventually he took over the party. That moment passed. And now, obviously, they are kind of the, the old Republican guard is kind of an endangered species. Yeah. Well, th this is a good segue to Biden here, cause, because in 2020, the Democratic Party did, I mean, in 2020, the Democratic Party did coalesce around Biden uh, I, I, in, in the, you know, the party decides fashion, right? Absolutely. Um, in large measure, because they, they viewed him as uh, the best candidate to take on Trump at the time, right? I don't think that's the case anymore. Uh and actually, so what we see on the Democratic side is almost the mirror image of what we see on the Republican side, right? Whereas 80% of Republican voters want Trump to be their nominee, as of September of last year, two-thirds of Democratic voters indicated they wanted a different nominee from Biden. <laughs> and I think most Democratic elites also have strong doubts about Biden at this point. But I think basically what happened there is that once Biden made it known that he was going to run for re-election— uh, Democratic leaders recognized that it would not be good for him to face a competitive primary um, because the track record for incumbent presidents uh, who have to deal with competitive primaries is not good, right? I mean, Jimmy George, Carter, 1980. J Jimmy Carter, 1980. George H.W. Bush, 1992. Those were presidents who faced competitive primary challenges when they ran for reelection and went on to lose uh, their general elections. They came out of those primaries very weakened. Um, and so once, Bi once Biden decided to run, I think Democratic leaders got together and effectively said, we need to clear the field for him if we're going to win this thing and hold off Trump in 2024. Um, and so here we are. Is that how you see it too, Joe? Yeah, I think I might add one little detail. I think that the reason Biden ran in 2020 was Donald Trump. And I think the reason he's running again is Donald Trump. And I just think that everybody's going to swallow hard and support him when they have to because the other choice is Donald Trump. And so this is unfortunately a referendum on the person I call the most dangerous politician in American history. Uh, but that's the reality. I, I think Biden would have stepped aside if everything had gone rosy and Donald Trump had gone away. Yeah, so he, so he's convinced that, that he's the only one that can beat Trump. Well, I, I don't know if I would put it that way. I think he's convinced that if he were to step aside and Trump were to win anyway, it would devastate him. And so I, I, he just doesn't want to take that risk, and I don't blame him. I mean, it's a complicated thing because— you know, as we all know, uh, you know, pr incumbent presidents 
lose a lot of political capital once they announce once they're not once they become lame ducks right mm -hmm. and so had biden announced that he wasn't running for re-election he would have become a lame duck um the entire political class would have ignored him and his presidency may well have been much less successful as a result so i can understand why he didn't want to announced that he was not running for re-election. And then at a certain point, you know, I can understand from a strategic perspective why he thought it would be good for him to run for re-election. Uh, but, you know, it, I think it's hard to ignore all the warning signs surrounding his candidacy. And I certainly understand the many, many Democrats who wish that the party were offering the voters a different choice this year. Right. Though, but to look at it from Biden's perspective, I'm sure he told himself, look at all the great things I've accomplished. You know, the Infrastructure Act, uh, the uh, inflation, what is it, the Inflation Control? Reduction, Reduction Act. Reduction Act, uh, which is mainly a, 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 you know, a green, green energy bill, a lot of investments for alternative. Energy infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm sure he said, well, look, and the economy's booming. We didn't have a recession. Inflation has come down. So I'm sure he's told himself, I've done a great job. Surely Americans are going to see that. Well, sure. But, you know, I don't know if he ever explicitly said so in 2020, but the operating assumption of his campaign in 2020 was that he would be a one-term president, that his mission was to get the country, was to move the country away from the Trump era, to get us past Trump, right? And, and that was his mission. He would fulfill it, and then he'd step aside in the same way that say, James K. Polk stepped aside in 1848, right? He completed everything he wanted to do in a single term, and then he left office. Um, and I think most people were under, under the impression that that's the way the Biden pre presidency was going to unfold. And so I think he did surprise a lot of people when he decided to run for re-election. I mean, in retrospect, you know, and as I said earlier, it, it looks like a sensible decision from a lot of vantage points. But I think many people expected him to serve a single term. Well, since we're talking about Biden, maybe we should talk a little bit about the challenges he faces over the next months. Uh, what what does he have to do uh, to win this election? What 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 are his big obstacles? And do we want to begin by talking about age and frailty? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't want to follow the leaders on this one. Okay. Um, I, I think Biden's biggest challenge is he's got a completely dysfunctional government with a single most active policy-making institution, the Supreme Court. Uh, and so he, Congress isn't doing much of anything. They're trying, but they can't get they can't get anything passed. The concept of compromise is completely foreign to members of the House, particularly Republican members. Uh, and so his challenge is how do we sort of get the funding for the foreign policy initiatives and defense initiatives that he has, um, while the government's just not working. I mean, it's not, and it's beyond the president's reach, but the reality is he's got a lot. Um, he's got a good staff. I think as a presidency person, I keep telling people, yeah, he's, he's an old geezer and his voice is weak and he shuffles, um, you know, and he waxes on about ice cream. But the reality is he has a really solid team who knows what they're doing. And they're on board with him, and he's evidently quite active in the decision-making process. 
um, questioning that staff. And so he's functioning the way a, a, the typical president ideally does. And so I think for Biden, he just continues to do that, figures out how he doesn't shut the government down, figures out how he can get Ukraine money and Israel money and border money. Um, and, you know, cross his fingers and hope people realize how insane it will be to put Donald Trump back in the White House. Well, it, I heard an Ezra Klein podcast just, very, just this last week where I, Ezra Klein would have responded, I think, to what you had just said, Joe, was that, yes, Biden is an excellent president. All the evidence is that he's a really, really good president, but he may be a terrible candidate. Yeah, he was a terrible candidate in 2020. Uh, what do you think, Adam? Well, I'm going to set aside the question of whether Biden is an excellent president um, and focus on his candidacy. And yeah, I'd I, say he's good enough. <laughs> fair, yeah, that's fair. Look, uh, I do think we cannot avoid the issue of age and, to use your term, Bill, frailty. Uh, yeah, because I, I actually think that that word describes the situation. That's it's, right. It's I, not that he, it's not that he's 81, but he looks very frail. He has a the the quality of his vo voice. He, he it sounds like he's having a difficult time getting the wind behind his voice, mm -hmm. so that so that so that it comes out strong enough. And I think that's a real problem. It absolutely is. And listen, the data uh, back up your intuitions, Bill. I mean, an amazing statistic I recently saw was from the Yuga of Econ Economist poll, which showed that. 54% of Americans agree that Biden's age is severely limiting his ability to, to fulfill his responsibilities as president. And what's especially remarkable is that only 24% of those same Americans say that Trump's age would severely limit his ability to do the job as president, even though Trump's only four years younger than Biden. Now, I mean, four years can make a big difference, right? And Biden was Trump's age four years ago, and people weren't talking about Biden's age back then. So. We have to take all that into account. Uh, but it's it's really rather remarkable the way Americans are assessing um, these two candidates um, who are roughly speaking, you know, pretty close to each other in terms of age. They're assessing them very differently in terms of what their age means for their capacity to do the job. Uh, and just, you know, beyond that, you know, there's a whole host of other statistics out there, which I think are very, very troubling for Biden. His disapproval numbers have been above 50 percent for a long time now and in nearly all the polls, the national polls that have been conducted. Um, and that's a very ominous place for an incumbent president to be in uh, at the beginning of an election year. So, uh, you know, there are certainly lots of issues that Biden and his campaign team are going to have to address about him personally. Right. And uh, he, he's getting these bad numbers, even though the economic numbers are so good that we've got a strong economy. And normally presidential approval seems to go along with the perceptions of the economy. And, and that isn't happening with him at all. Yeah, I would say that we're kind of in a period, I think some of the research uh, Adam and I have been talking recently about suggests that there's been a decoupling of all the knowledge that we used to have about what drives these things. And I think affective evaluations are driving everything. It's emotional, it's passion, it's not interest. And as a result, I don't think the economy predicts presidential approval, uh, doesn't, I don't think it's predicting outcomes the way that it did even yeah. 10 years ago. And, and presidential performance doesn't affect 
uh, you know, yeah. no. Actual, I think we are seeing a period of true irrationality <laughs> and more identity <laughs> politics driving yeah. uh, both these evaluations and voting behavior. That you know, this this sort of negative partisanship with the polarization finally creeping in and completely taking over the public's attitudes. Yeah, you you want to? I think we're in deep trouble. You want to remind our listeners about negative partisanship and what that is. Uh, basically, you identify with your party less for the traditional set of economic and social issues that glob into this aggregation of interest that we call party. Um, into the other side is so bad or so evil or so wrong or so unpatriotic or so un-American that I have to be in the other party. And so we're sorting ourselves in a very emotional way that doesn't necessarily bear rem- uh, any resemblance to, to our interest anymore. Yeah. It's all passion in my view. Yeah. But, but, but Adam, I'm going to address this to you. That's kind of a puzzle uh, a that that needs to be explained, w- w- that we need to explain uh, Biden's poor numbers, because it's clear that certainly a lot of Democratic voters, many independents, and uh, even some Republicans have a very negative view of Trump, are very fearful of the MAGA phenomena, uh, yet they don't seem to see Biden as a vehicle uh, to counter that. Right. So there's a lot of things that we need to un- untangle here or disentangle. So l- let me go back to the uh, the puzzle that you laid out earlier, Bill. The fact that, objectively speaking, it looks like the economy is doing quite well, although inflation is still high, but many of the other economic indicators are pretty good. Um, and yet 61% of Americans say the economy is bad, <laughs> right? Uh, and as Joe mentioned, uh, this has been a discussion among political scientists as of late, this kind of decoupling between economic performance, objective economic performance and presidential approval. There's a lot going on there. One thing that's going on, as Joe said, is the rising influence of partisanship and in particular negative partisanship. Republicans are far more likely to say the economy is bad when there's a Democratic president and Democratic Democrats are far more likely to say that the economy is bad when they're Republican a Republican is president, regardless of the objective conditions. So that's one thing that's going on. Um, but as you sort of alluded to, Bill, um, a lot of Democrats right now also uh, indicate that they think the economy is not doing all that great. So, so negative partisanship does not explain everything here. And it's, it's, it's complicated what's going on, but I think what a lot of people who are smart, a lot of smart political scientists, what they're saying is that this has something to do with Uh, the negativity of media coverage of the economy, and in particular, the way the media has reported um, a lot about sort of future economic indicators and economic projections rather than lagging economic indicators. In other words, what the economy has been doing in the past three months has not gotten as much coverage as what, as sort of prognostications of where the economy is likely to go for the pa- for the next six months. And we've been talking for a good two years about how a recession is imminent. And so that's been on people's minds for a long time now. So I think a combination of negative partisanship, media coverage, and a variety now, I would of- add elite manipulation. I think media is negative in part because it's more partisan than it used to be, but also because 
they are becoming even more dependent on the cascading propaganda that comes from the elites and the parties. Right, right. So there's a it's a there's a wide array of factors that are uh, that are kind of in the mix here and that do seem to be creating a a sort of a disconnect between objective economic conditions and American assessment, like public assessments. And, and this is different, right, from the kind of data that political scientists dealt with in the 70s, 80s, 90s, right. and early 2000s. This is sort of a new world that we as political analysts have to consider. Objective economic conditions are probably not going to be good predictors of election results going forward. Right. We have to pity our colleagues in political science who have specialized for the last two decades in predicting presidential election outcomes, looking at these normal indicators. And suddenly they're normal indicators aren't working anymore. Right. How do you how do you make predictions in that environment? Yeah, I think we are in a post-rational world. And um, for a long time, that was a subjective rational, meaning individuals. But now I think we have collective irrationality. And so I do think that that time has passed, just as sort of other theories of what drives political behaviors pass. Even sort of, there are three or four different theories as to what moves people and what can mitigate their attitudes or change their attitudes. Um, and they all don't work now. In large part, probably I would point to the information environment. And I tend to uh, point my finger at the elites rather than the media. Right. So put on your political consultant hats. What advice would you give to the Biden campaign about how uh, he can overcome these problems and still win the election next November? Well, I still think the primary driver of election results are sort of the framing debate. Who's going to frame the terms of the election and how people make their final decision? And I think the Biden people just have to drive home the things that matter to the coalition that they're trying to put together to win, including more the traditional Democratic coalition, labor, but also young people. I think young people want to hear about the environment. They want to hear about gun control. And so these are traditional Democratic issues. And if people are thinking about that when they go in the voting booth, as well as you know how long it took Joe Biden to get from the vote from registering to vote to the voting booth and back, you know, meaning he's old and he takes a long time to move, I think he'll be okay. And so they just have to focus on you know, the rational stuff, the economy. I think they have to take care of that lag problem and say, look, you know, don't just because it's said a hundred times doesn't mean it's true. And so they have to drive home on traditional issues and get people to frame it. And then, of course, you've always got the crazy uncle uh, who's a little younger, a lot more spry in some ways, but far less comprehensible. And, you know, remind people that if Donald Trump gets into office, the whole world's changed. What would you add, Adam? You know, I think uh, to the extent they can, uh, Biden's people really need to talk about ways to get Biden to appear more vital and robust on the campaign trail. As we've discussed, that perception of frailty um, is so prevalent right now, and it really does affect, um, I think, I mean, it, it certainly is affecting, uh, you know, near, nearly all Americans' perception of Biden, but I think it could well play a role in the vote choice of swing voters. Um, I mean, again, all else equal. And, you know, I think they do need to uh, really focus on delivering this message that, uh, you know, the economy actually is doing 
relatively speaking, quite well. They need to get the basic objective economic indicators out there. Um, I think a, I think a lot of I think public understanding of the economy is fairly low right now for the reasons that I discussed earlier. Right, we're so focused on what might happen in the next three months, in the next six months, that we are not focused on what the record has been um, in the past one year or two years or three years. And so, I, and I, so there's, it's it's important to get voters to think retrospectively, right? To encourage retrospective voting, right? This is a old-fashioned political science term for getting voters to think back to the way things were four short years ago and ask themselves, are you better off now than you were, right? And is the country better off now than it was, rather than to think, well, what might happen, you know, in the next month or two? But even there, we're, we have the problem of, of what Joe calls irrationality, that a lot of people are looking back and thinking, of, talking about how wonderful things were when Trump was president. And that's a real problem, right? Well, well look, um, I'll just say this about that. We've talked about this many times in podcasts. We, we are in an era of, you know, obviously hyperpolarization. More than that, we're in an era of sort of part partisan ossification, right? This was, uh, I think it was Sides and Vabric in their last book, their, their term for uh, the current American political moment, calcified politics, right? Our... A lot, political alignments are frozen. They have been for a long time. Uh, that, I think, is the, the most important thing to understand about American politics, really, in the 21st century. I don't see them unfreezing anytime in the near future. And just like in 2020, 2016, and 2012, this election is going to be decided by a very, very small subset of voters, right? 90% of us, 92, 93% of us are going to vote the same way we voted four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, right? So uh, it's, it's encouraging, it's boosting turnout among our core supporters, if you're, whether you're Democrats or Republicans. And then on top of that, reaching out to a very, very small sub right. subset of voters in a very small number of states, right? That's going to be determinative of the election result. Uh, yeah. We have to remember in 2016, Trump was elected by, what, 72,000 voters in, what, five states or six? Three. States? Three states. Three, three states, basically, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, if I were advising the Biden campaign, I'd say go back to 1982 and find the Republican campaign ad against Democrats running for Congress in 1982. And it was this, I Remember You was the song, and it would show the long lines, you know, no gas rationing, high inflation, they would flash up the national debt, and it, you know, remind them what it was like under that president. So, so what would you put in the, the ad? Well, I think I would probably make it very simple. I mean, I'd put in president, the president of the United States saying maybe we can figure out how you can swallow bleach and make COVID go away inside. Um, or, you know, him saying it'll be gone in two weeks. There'll be zero cases. Um, you know, then sort of the, the economic implications that came with that. Uh, and how, you know, I would even go so far as to show in some way that the information says, you poor Republicans, you're getting screwed by this guy. More Republicans died than Democrats after the vaccine because of him uh, and because of his followers and because of their fecklessness and their cowardice. And so I would just drive home how bad it was. We were all shut in at home, wearing masks, running to the grocery store, wiping everything down when Donald Trump was president because he wouldn't acknowledge the truth. Okay. Uh, 
Well, actually, I wanted to move on to talk about Trump some more, uh, though. But one last thing about Biden. Uh, again, I'll refer back to this Ezra Klein podcast I heard this week. Uh, one of the one of the main his his main theme in that podcast is that he was urging Biden to withdraw from the race and for the Democrats to pick a candidate at the convention. What do you guys think about that scenario? Is that one is it's is not going to happen? Any, any, but to be honest with you, I would love that to happen too, but it's not going to. Right. I think a lot of people would love that to happen. And, and, and what's interesting is more and more elite commentators are saying that, you know, it's not just as recline. Ross right. Douthat. Right. Um, had well, but, a, but I, I, let's stop here. You know why they're doing that? Because normally during this time, they have such a huge role in, in right. the horse race of primaries. And there are no primaries that are relevant. Now. Right. They have to find and something to write about. So they have to, to find about. something else to write about and do a horse race of some other kind. That's right. That's what's going on. Um, you know, I mean, I think they Joe, have to make money. Yeah, they have to make money. Listen, and I think you're right, Joe, that I mean, obviously, it's not going to happen. I mean, I, or there's the chances that it will happen are very small. Um, but if it were to happen, we would have to ask ourselves, you know, how Americans would respond to that. I think a lot of Americans might be relieved. Other Americans, or Republicans would say, aha. Uh, the fix is in. We always knew that the Democratic <laughs> Party didn't want to give its voters a chance to weigh in. Instead, they they engineered everything so that Biden wouldn't right. be their nominee and, the, and that the party leaders would be able to pick the nominee. Look, they nominated Taylor Swift, see? <laughs> yeah. She is old enough. <laughs> Remember, Oprah was bantied about in 2016, 2012. Right, that's right. right. Okay, well, let's, let's talk some more about Trump. Uh, what what are what are Trump's strengths and weaknesses uh, going into twenty twenty four? Well, I think Trump is the perfect candidate for the period. Let's be honest that we're, you know, I've been talking about Trump as understanding American politics has become like professional wrestling, uh, and he's perfectly suited for that. He creates a fiction. The fi fiction is a perceived reality. It's kind of the shape shifting that occurs in postmodern politics, um, and so he's the perfect candidate for an irrational polity, which is what we have right now. Uh, you know, he ties into emotions on both sides. He gets his opponents all all worked up just like at a wrestling match he gets his proponents even more and so he's perfect for the entertainment value that we seem to think is an important element of american politics so that's his strength his weaknesses is everything else that he still he has not won the popular vote he put together an inadvertent coalition that was in part due to the opposing candidate hillary clinton Hillary Clinton, for all his problems, Joe Biden doesn't have the voter baggage that Hillary Clinton had with that middle portion that will determine the outcome. So, look, uh, there's so much to say here, so I have to try to organize my thoughts a bit. Um, I think that at the, at the moment we're in right now, um, we're kind of at an inflection point in terms of this campaign. We're at a moment in which voters who are not political junkies, who kind of tune in and out and don't pay regular attention to politics like we do, they're starting to internalize the fact that Biden's opponent in the general election is going to be Trump, right? Up until this point, that seemed like a very likely outcome to those of us who pay close attention. Uh, but I don't think a lot of folks who don't regularly pay, pay attention really considered it very closely. 
Uh, now they are. And, and the Biden campaign's theory has always been that the dynamics of this race uh, would shift substantially once that happened, once voters internalized this as a race of Biden versus Trump, not Biden versus X. Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest that, that is, in fact, happening. And look, Trump has massive problems uh, and disadvantages going into the general election. This is someone um, who's entering the general election with very high unfavorability numbers. I mean, the, the polls differ to some degree in terms of what they are, but it, you know, somewhere between 50 and 65 percent, that's extraordinarily high for someone who's not even president. Um, and listen, we're about ready to see something unprecedented happen in American politics, which is the presumptive nominee for president of a major party is going to be standing trial on 34 felony counts in the middle of a campaign. You know, now it's important to say, you know, <laughs> he's facing four different criminal prosecutions, but I uh, always expected that his lawyers would be able to delay the start of all these trials until after the election. Um, but it turns out I was wrong about that. There is now a date that has been set for the one in New York State, the uh, the hush money case in New York State. Um, I think it's it's March 25th or something. Right, it's early um, March. In March. And so uh, we're going to see a a, a criminal trial um, in which Trump is the defendant unfold in the middle of this campaign, and it seems very likely to me um, that a verdict will be rendered. You know, sometime probably in you know April, May. I don't know exactly when. Uh, certainly, if he's convicted, that I think does change the dynamics of this race, you know, in in ways that are very significant and very hard to predict. Um, and so, you know, just there's a lot that we don't know about how this is all going to unfold. Um, but uh, you know, it's 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 mystifying to me that so many Republican voters, you know, think that. Trump is their best candidate. Um, they had a lot of alternatives to choose from, and yet 80% seem to want Trump. Um, and so they're, they're going to get their wish, and, and we will see <laughs> what that means in very short order. Yeah, and the, and the trial, uh, the federal trial for his activities in trying to overthrow the 2020 election might also begin, uh, depending upon uh, what the Supreme Court does in the next few weeks about this, uh, this attempt to stop it. He's he's arguing that he's immune from prosecution because he's a president, and that's going to be before the Supreme Court, probably in pretty short order, unless the Supreme Court decides to dither. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to get into all of that uh, legalistic uh, maneuvering, but, you know, there's still a chance that, you know, uh, by maybe June or so, that trial might begin. And, and that trial, obviously, is, is much more serious. I mean, right. I think I'll, most people, well, first of all, in, in the court of public opinion, I think that the New York case about the hush money payments to uh, Stormy Daniels, a lot of people poo-poo that case. And I think it's probably the weakest legally as well. But certainly the, the federal case regarding um, the events leading up to January 6th, that, that's probably the strongest case. Um, and it's it's the one with with the most uh, you know significant you know legal consequences for Trump as well. Um, I mean, I think you know a conviction in that case would almost certainly result in substantial prison time. Uh, so yeah, there's just a tremendous amount here in terms of, and we have, and of course, then there's all of Trump's the civil litigation surrounding Trump. Right. Uh, you know, like the 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 amount of 
stuff we could talk about in regards to his, you know, legal issues, you know, that's a podcast in and right. of itself. Now, uh, up to now, Trump, however, has be been able to turn this to his advantage. He shows up at these trials. He comes out and does press conferences and plays the victim. He's being persecuted by the deep state, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, I, why doesn't I, I, he, why I want do, to interject is, on this. Yeah. You, know, you got us where Trump goes tells you where the money's going. And so the reason he's showing up in these courtrooms is when he shows up in the courtrooms and then uses it, he raises more money. It has very little to do with his concern about any individual detail or case. Uh, he's showing up because some, I'm absolutely assured that he found that he raises more money when he shows up because he's, it's his money. He, it's always his money. Right. But is this going to help him in the campaign, though? Is it going to are voters going no, to? I, you know, are I, I voters going to respond? I mean, Trump he's attempting to day-to-day -day instinct. I I, th I think the it's already sort of baked in the voters who feel that Trump is being persecuted and so yeah. forth. Right? Um, they are the ones that are going to deliver the Republican nomination to him, um, and they they do account. I think at this point for about forty percent of the American general electorate, um, but I don't think it goes much beyond that. Um, and so, you know, in order to win, he's obviously going to need to peel, peel off voters in addition to um, those folks. And, uh, you know, I think all the evidence we have thus far suggests that if he's convicted in a criminal trial, um, you know, that would would uh, I don't want to say that would put the kibosh on on his presidential election and, and his campaign. Um, but I think it would it would vastly swing the campaign dynamics in Biden's favor. And, you know, I don't even know what would happen next in terms of, you know, I mean, like, you know, we'd have a, a presidential candidate awaiting sentencing campaigning. I, you know, it's hard to even fathom how that would all unfold. Right. And, and there are polls showing that some of his people who say they've, they support Trump say their vote would change if he were convicted. Right. So, so we have some hard data there that suggests it would make And you a also have data of uh, erosion within the Republican Party from what primaries and caucuses we've had. Um, there are significant people who show up for the Republican events who aren't going to support him. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're showing up for the show. Yeah, so if he only gets, normally a, a Republican candidate will get over nine, about 90% or more of the Republican identifier vote. He might only get 70, and that's, that's going to devastate him. Right. Uh, both candidates are, are saying this election is about the future of democracy. Uh, Trump says that if he doesn't win, the liberal elites are going to ride roughshod. The border's going to open up, and immigrants are going to inundate the country. And 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 the Biden uh, uh, team, I think, um, more accurately, uh, say that Trump is a real threat to democracy because he doesn't care about it. <laughs> I I keep reminding my students that if you look at American history, every once in a while, everybody says the end is near. Part of it probably comes from our Protestant culture. Um, and so I, I caution them that still, perhaps the dirtiest election in our history was 1800. Um, and, and so all of these cries that democracy is under siege, we've got to take that into historical context, that we always think that it's all or nothing. 
I think that's part of the polarization and the, the sort of the refusal to see anything other than your position as a valid one. That's part of our current state. But I also do think that there's a legitimate concern that if Donald Trump does get elected, uh, unlike the last time, they're going to know what to do and they're going to change forever. They meaning 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 Trump's uh, team. Trump's team, you know, the Heritage Foundation has Project 2025, where 70,000 civil service positions at top layers are, they're all going to be fired and they're going to be replaced with political appointees returning us to a patronage state. Um, that's terrifying. And I think uh, there are threats. And there's no solid opposition within the party to keep him in line the way that traditionally parties have done for presidents that they didn't disagree with. And has happened in his first term. The adults in the room are not going to be there. The adults in the room won't be there. Um, the true believers will be there. And I think there are a lot of concerns. Um, we'll see. I don't know, Adam. What do you think? <laughs> well, <laughs> so I, I, I don't – to me, the – I don't actually think, you know, that the scenario that that Joe just sketched out is is that's not the scenario that I worry about most regarding what happens if Trump is elected. I think before we even get there, we we likely have just massive civil unrest. I mean, you know, I I think it's going to be I mean, it's not just going to be the far left, it's going to be, you know, millions and millions of Americans in the center left may well be out in the streets if if Trump wins. Um, you know, people would view that as such a fundamental threat to American democracy. Uh, and mobilized by the fears of the things Joe talked about, though. Right, right. right. Well, you know, to back him up, my plan is if Trump wins, the next day I'm going to HR and changing my, w, my tax statement so that I get all my taxes and my paycheck so I can be a tax protester. Well, I, I wasn't thinking about that as my move. I'm but sure look, the IRS isn't listening. <laughs> um, you know, the difficulty here, of course, um, is that both sides have been warning about the other side as being a threat to democracy for a very long time. And I, I, underst I certainly understand your perspective about this bill, but I, um, I'm in regular email contact with two uh, friends from grad school who are staunch conservatives. We've been engaged in this longstanding email conversation over American politics for about 15 years now. And certainly one of them is convinced that the Democratic Party and liberal elites, as you say, and secularists and so forth, are as much of a threat to American democracy as you think Trump and Trumpism is. Uh, but the other thing to bear in mind is that, you know, we, uh, we elites of either political persuasion, <laughs> we elites... Uh, Bill was just pointing to a book he's reading about this very topic. Uh, we elites of, of either political or any political persuasion, we may uh, look at what's going on right now and see the massive political stakes of all of this, but um, a lot of Americans um, do not. And um, a lot of Americans are just sort of f fatigued um, by the regular pandemonium that has been American politics for the past, really, you know, eight, ten years, depending on wh where you want to set the line of demarcation. Um, and to some degree, that's actually my biggest fear, that uh, it's, I, I think a lot of people have just sort of been inured to all of this and are not aware of what the stakes are. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a dilemma that I don't quite know how to solve. What about people in the streets if Biden wins? 
Well, uh, you know, this it's an interesting question. I mean, sir, you know, there's this famous um, Rick Hassan, uh, the prominent election law professor at UCI, um, off, starts off one of his books by saying that the most common um, prayer among, I think, elect, uh, political consultants um, is, Lord, please make it so this election not be close. <laughs> and uh, really, in many respects, that would be the, I mean, I think the election, unfortunately, will be close. But if the election is close, that in, is, in many respects, the worst outcome for American democracy, because then um, the chances that either side won't accept the result are significantly elevated. Um, and yeah, if the election is closed but Biden wins, um, then um, we may see a, a repeat of what happened in the aftermath of 2020, and it, and it could be worse. Um, so many people that, you know, that I know and, and people that I see being quoted, ordinary people who are being interviewed by reporters um, who are being um, quoted in, in, in uh, articles about the current state of American politics say that they really view this election as kind of a redemption for Trump, you know, after he was unfairly ousted from office in 2020. And if you know, many of those people, if Biden wins narrowly, their hopes will be dashed. And I don't quite know what happens then. It's always possible, and, and people have said for years, that you know it will take several consecutive defeats for the Republican Party for Republican voters to finally understand that Trumpism is a dead end, um, at which point en enough of them will decide to move on. And I hold out hope that that might happen this year, uh, but I can't say I'm optimistic. I think it has to be a wave in order for the legitimacy question to be put to rest, meaning Democrats have to take over both houses of Congress, and that's probably not going to happen. So uh, I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes on, on Congress uh, in a little while, but before we do that— There's a Congress? <laughs> they still exist? <laughs> uh, well, there, there are people down there running for office. Anyway. They're running uh, for re-election. <laughs> right. So uh, about the campaign, though, I want to mention just a couple of—what about issues? What kind of issues are we going to be hearing about uh, and— what, what side is going to propose, promote what kinds of issues, and what are some key constituencies that we should be looking at? Uh, Joe, I know you have some thoughts about young people as a constituency. Well, I do think for the Democrats to have a chance at winning the White House as well as taking back the House of Representatives, they do need at least a repeat of the youth turnout from 2020. Um, you know, Current polls suggest that young people, yeah, they want to go out, but they're not enthusiastic. All the issues they care about are issues that you know turn to the Democrats. They Democrats have a twenty-plus point uh, margin, and so I I think young people are probably an important element. But actually, I think for Democrats, they're going to have to exploit their sort of the good news for the labor union movement and get some of those labor Democrats back. They've got to focus on that. And then, of course, they're going to drive home abortion, and they're going to talk about climate change. Um, so I, I think that those are probably the issues that I would focus on. Yeah, well, so as far as issues are concerned, I, I, I think Joe is absolutely right about abortion. Uh, 
you know, this presidential election is going to overlap with more citizen-initiated abortion referenda in a lot of states, including Florida. Um, and so voters are going to vote directly on that issue on the ballot in many places. And, uh, you know, it, there are reports out now that Trump, once he wraps up the Republican nomination, is going to announce that he supports a 16-week abortion ban um, with exceptions for rape, incest, and to save the life of a mother. Um, but I think Democrats, if that in fact happens, are going to make hay out of that, uh, you know, because it, it, it will be rather remarkable for Trump to run on that platform at the same time as there are ballot initiatives in a lot of states that seek to legalize abortion well beyond the 16 week limit. Right. Voters will be or Democrats will be able to say um, Trump wants to overturn the direct will of the people in a lot of states where uh, voters have passed. Uh, abortion rights. Um, I think on the Republican side... Just and if I could follow up quickly, the other problem there is, is if he comes out with a national abortion ban, uh, that's going to go against the, the logic of the repeal of Roe v. Wade, which was about, which, which is about empire the, empower the states. And I think the, the Democrats could make a hay out of that. I mean, the, 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 the number of weeks I don't think is going to be the issue. This is going to be do we want the federal government dictating what happens? In, uh, in a, do we want the U.S. Congress right? Well, look, dictating what happens in abortion? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's almost more of a federalism question, right? I mean, what Trump could say in response to that is, I just want the will of the people to be respected regarding abortion. And I think nationally, the American people are in favor of reasonable limitations on abortion. And the Dobbs decision did say Congress could intervene as well, not just the states. I think... I think there's ways around that particular issue, but I do think the fact that this uh, election is going to be occurring at the same time as a lot of popular referenda on abortion is going to make it harder for Trump to sell his 16-week abortion ban. Yeah, I don't uh, think it's going to fly anyway. I think Trump, he's so transactional, he doesn't understand how fundamentally problematic that's going to be for his base. Yeah, Um it, well, that's another question, whether or not, you know, the the pro-life community is going to be happy with, you know, a, a quote-unquote compromise in the form of a 16-week abortion ban. Obviously, they want to go a lot further. Um, but look, in terms of the, the issues that the Trump campaign is going to promote, I think, you know, th it's pretty clear a big issue they're going to be running on is immigration, um, because we this, this is a real objective problem for Biden. There's been this surge in unauthorized border crossings over the past two years. It's at the highest levels it's been in, in, in many years. Um, Republicans in the Senate scuttled a bipartisan immigration reform compromise, uh, largely because of opposition by Trump, who wants to make it a campaign issue. It's pretty clear that immigration is going to be a central part of the Republican campaign message this year. So those are the two issues that I'm going to be focused the most on abortion in terms of what the Democrats are campaigning on and immigration in terms of what Republicans are campaigning on. Um, and then we could talk about a whole host of other issues, the economy, uh, democracy, and so on and so forth. And but age. There will be age. And is that an Mental issue? That's not really debate. an issue as much yeah. as a, it's not a policy issue. It's a... In the United States, anything is a policy issue yeah, these days. Maybe. Uh, what about foreign policy? I mean, uh, and here it's Ukraine, Gaza. Uh, the, the Gaza situation is certainly creating problems for Biden and the Democrats. I wonder if Ukraine is going to have the same impact on uh, 
Republicans and Trump, particularly if things go really bad in Ukraine. Foreign policy is probably an internal problem for Biden, not one for the broader electorate, meaning internal to the party. There's no, historically, there's really not much of a connection between foreign policy and voter choice. And so I really don't see that as a major issue outside of the small, coherent people who always vote on the base of foreign policy. Um, I do think that possibly the NATO question uh, as it relates to Ukraine and other things could be used by Democrats. Um, but I really don't th I think they should focus. I don't think they should assume that they're going to sway anybody on you know, the fact that Ukrainian military people don't have enough weapons and bullets. But there's been a lot of uh, articles in the press just very recently about uh, groups like Arab Americans turning against Biden. In, 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 in Michigan, particularly, uh, which is probably going to be a swing state or potentially a swing state in this election. Uh, do you think that is really a factor? I mean, we're not talking about uh, a huge percentage of the electorate, but in a, in, a, in a swing state, could that make a difference? Well, well, let me, so a couple of things I want to say about this. First of all, you know, obviously a lot depends on how these conflicts unfold in the next months. Um, but as a general matter, I agree with Joe that um, it's highly unlikely that, that, that either the Gaza war or Ukraine are going to be front and center in this campaign. I can't think of a presidential election in my lifetime, uh, you know, and I, and I was born in the early 1980s, in which foreign policy was one of the central issues, right? And, and only about one, two, th maybe three percent of Americans uh, rate any foreign policy issue as being the most important problem facing the country right now, right? So it's not actually at the forefront of the minds of most people. Now, having said that, um, it is true that in closed presidential elections, pivotal constituencies in battleground states can make a crucial difference. I mean, in Florida in 2000, um, there is definitely reason to believe that the 2000 president, that the vote came down to, or was affected in part by what Cuban Americans in Miami did. Um, and this goes way back, but you know, a lot of Cuban Americans at that time were really upset over the Clinton administration's handling of Elian Gonzalez. The, this was this young boy that arrived on American shores from Cuba by himself, and, and, the, Cl and the Clinton administration sent him back to Cuba, and Cuban exiles were infuriated with that, and um, the percentage of the vote that Al Gore got in, in 2000, 2000 was lower than what Bill Clinton got in 96. And yeah, I mean, Florida was very, very close, and that, that did end up costing, that was one of many factors uh, that cost Gore that election. And so one could look at what's going on in Michigan right now, which does have a high Arab American population, and say, you know, there's, a, there's certainly a chance that uh, backlash to the Biden administration's um, policies vis-a-vis -vis Israel and Gaza is going to cost them crucial votes among Arabs, Arab Americans in Michigan. But look, on the other hand, people aren't talking about the fact that, uh, you know, the, uh, that Pennsylvania, which is also a battleground state, has a very large Jewish population, right? And had Biden pursued a different policy, um, he may have angered that constituency and lost Pennsylvania. So it's very hard to know how these things shake out. And in Michigan, remember, yeah, they're upset with Biden, but when they start comparing the two and Donald Trump using immigration as one of his big issues, starts talking about closing the borders to all those awful people from other places, yeah. it's going to include them right. and their family. Yeah, and they may, uh, and again, when it becomes a choice, 
right now they can be angry at Biden because they think he's too pro-Israel. But when it's a choice between Biden and Trump, who would be even more pro-Netanyahu, right, more supportive of whatever Netanyahu wants to do in Gaza, they're, it's going to be a, now a choice election. And surely they're going to say it's wiser. Yeah, more negative voting. Uh, okay, very quick, just to wind up, third-party candidacies. Uh, we now know that uh, Manchin is not going to run. <laughs> there was some worry that Manchin was going to run for president uh, under the no-labels uh, 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 party. Uh, what do you think about it? Uh, but, but Robert Kennedy's still out there, and uh, uh, we've got some other uh, uh, Cornell West. and uh, uh, You know, we always hear these names. I remember... 2000, maybe, that a famous political scientist, Theodore Lowy, was leading up the campaign for the Reform Party, and they were going to try to get on the ballot in every state. Um, you know, these things fizzle. Robert Kennedy has the Kennedy name, but not the Kennedy family behind him. Um, and I think, you know, I, I just, I think it's all vanity. I don't, I don't see any of these candidates as making a serious dent in the outcome. I hope that's true because, again, going back to the 2000 presidential election, we do know that when right. presidential elections are closed, third-party candidates can make a difference. I think it's it's quite fair to say that um, Ralph Nader did cost Al Gore the election in in oh, and the butterfly ballot and right. So we could we could go on and on and on and list yeah. all the factors that led Al Gore to lose Florida. You know, Elian Gonzalez, the butterfly ballots, Ralph Nader, and Ralph Nader now is very adamant about there should not be third party candidates. Right. He's, well, he's been he's been made several statement public and he's statements. He's older than Biden. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, good for him. I'm glad. He, I'm glad he he realizes the mistake he made um, by running uh, 24 years ago. Um, I hope that voters are sophisticated enough to know that in our electoral system, it's unfortunately the case that voting for a third party candidate for president, particularly in a battleground state, is basically the same as a wasted vote. Um, I would argue it's two votes against your interest. It's your third party choice and a vote against the person or a vote taken away from the person you would have supported in the two-party race. I guess that's what it is symbolically. Yeah. Mathematically, it's just a wasted vote. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, but who knows? Um, you know, I hope it doesn't come to that. And I don't really see RFK taking off, but we'll, we shall see. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Joe and Adam. I think we'll wind it up here. We could go on for, I imagine, another hour if we wanted to. Uh, but we'll... We'll get together again, uh, maybe uh, in the fall, maybe before. Who knows if some big developments happen in the next couple of months before the end of the semester, we might reconvene and talk about American politics, presidential election. Uh, we'll see. But uh, anyway, I really appreciate your making the time to uh, speak with me today. And uh, uh, it's really great, uh, really great hearing your thoughts on American politics and hearing your wisdom. It's always uh, great to talk to the two of you. Okay, good. And thanks uh, very much to our producer, Gabrielle, who's, uh, uh, this is his first uh, a job uh, working as producer of this podcast. And so far, he's done a wonderful job. Uh, and we look forward to working with him in the this semester. And thanks also to Joe Carr and Chris Judge of the Office of uh, Communications at Providence College who continue to support the podcast 
And thanks to the Political Science Department for continuing to support the podcast. And I'll mention uh, particularly the support of the department's vice chair, Adam Myers, <laughs> uh, who has been instrumental in keeping the podcast going. And thanks to all our listeners. Uh, please tell four friends about the podcast and look forward to uh, your listening to future podcasts in the weeks to come.